Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hello and welcome to the EM360 podcast with our Ask the Expert series, a weekly conversation with people who are impacting the enterprise tech landscape. My name is Max Curtin, Editor-in-Chief here at EM360 and your host on today's podcast. Now, in today's episode, I'm speaking with Art Sheckman, who is the founder and president of Elephant Ventures. So welcome, Art, and thank you for coming on today's podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation, but before we delve into that, could you just give the listeners at home a bit of background on yourself? Sure. In the dawn of time when I was born and, you know, pterodactyls roamed the earth, as an MIT guy, I came out of the artificial intelligence lab. I actually built autonomous micro robots for the government for a number of years and then ultimately worked for the company that became iRobot that makes the Roomba. I left there, went to Wall Street, built all kinds of software and data networking, built the security for one of the world's first online bond trading networks, built the voice over IP practice in a phone company out of voice over IP technologies and built all their infrastructure and billing systems. That led me to software development. Then eventually in the 90s, in the dot-com boom, I had a startup that uh, needed to raise funds, right, as everything busted. And then I became the hatchet guy for a, a suite of investors cleaning up some of their failed investments. And then in 2004, founded Elfin Ventures. The goal, even in the name of Ventures, is just to become an innovation and venture development studio. And we spent the last almost 17 years now evolving the practices around how you deliver innovative technology with extreme speed and reduced risk. And we have a whole software methodology that we call dependable innovation that helps us to do that. And largely our customers these days are B2B, largely focused around data engineering and data acceleration, getting from data to decisions as rapidly as possible. This is kind of why you're the perfect person to come on, because I can safely assume from that history that you're a fan of innovation and and pushing the narrative forward. Yeah, we have a, a core belief around this idea that there's sort of research, which is, you know, kind of building new tools and finding new things and exploring. And then there's more commoditized rinse and repeat engineering. And then in the middle of that, when you're materializing the adjacent possible, taking things that were historically not possible, if you're aware of the new tools, how they're used, what they can do, and then you can take that and have new business challenges and new things that become possible. They're sort of adjacently possible now. And through the process of innovation, you can bring them into being in use. That is our sweet spot. When you have hard problems to solve that you think maybe if you got some help from some great technologists and engineers, you could solve that problem. We're the people you want to call. That's perfect. And that's exactly why Art's here, because we're going to be talking about innovation versus investment and also data-driven technology and everything around that. So one bit of information that I was given prior to this was some recent research from Accenture that was talking about how innovation spend has increased in the last five years, which is fantastic, but that return on investment has declined, which is kind of an interesting parallel when you look at it. So I wanted to kick off the podcast by asking you where that kind of root cause comes from of why organizations are seeing a decline in that return of investment, but they're still trying to innovate. I think it's the denominator, right? If you're doing the math on how this is going, you're looking at innovation spending in aggregate, it's important, right? There's a bunch of research and market studies and business cases around folks that invest successfully in innovation being outperformers in their field of competitors. And a lot of people have have said, oh, okay, well, we need to do innovation. 
And you have innovation, you have innovation getting done. And then sometimes you have innovation theater where people know they're supposed to do innovation. They have an innovation program, but it's not really all that innovative. And in some cases, you have very forward-thinking leaders where they're shifting the innovation out to an externalized or a partnership model. Sometimes you'll see either separate business units, separate facilities, or partnerships with local startups in their field or space to help get a different kind of behavior, different kind of culture, different kind of thinking injected into what could be a very large corporate protectionist type of entity. There's all this research around how innovative practices and habits, they're risky. And as you become a larger public company, you behold in a shareholder interest in things. At some point, you create processes and controls and risk management things and all kinds of structures that are all about preserving what you have and making sure you're not taking on disproportionate risk. And you, you almost squeeze all the innovation out of your enterprise in the interest of creating stability. And so if you want to embrace innovation, you really need to tackle the people aspects of it, the political aspects of it, and get the risk model of it right so that you're empowering your people to fail. One of the hallmarks or one of the key measures, I would say, that shows you if you have effective innovation is the ability or the openness of your team to be able to kill an idea and say, yeah, this was bad. It's not working. Let's stop exploring this. Let's move on to the next thing. And oftentimes what you'll see in organizations as they're innovating is as you go through subsequent rounds of approval and review and TPS reports and all kinds of things that kind of get stuck onto the innovation as it matures and gets out of people's idea or headspace and starts to be executed, is all the innovative things that are super risky about it either get deferred or pulled out of it. And so what you wind up building on the other side is a very commoditized kind of lackluster thing that doesn't capture a tremendous amount of value. And so there's you know, some amount of, hey, everybody, we got to innovate, so everyone's spending money on innovation, not necessarily actually doing innovation. And then you have cultural implications of how you're doing innovation at much larger organizations that at times can take the efficacy out of the innovation process. And so I, th I think that's where the decay is coming from. I still think you see a strong indicator for outperformance based on the folks that are investing in innovation. Okay, so there's good intentions there. There's just not the best follow-up is what, what we're kind of looking at from organizations. I would choose a different word. I wouldn't say follow-up. Uh, you know, it's a funny story. My dad taught me uh, when we we're fixing engines as a kid, right? There are three critical things to engines, right? There's air, there's gas, and there's spark. And if one of those things is missing, then, you know, your engine doesn't run. And uh, I had kids and the sort of you add one thing to the list. It's like food, they need to be changed. Something hurts or, you know, they need to be loved or entertained or sleep. You know, it's kind of the same simple rules around innovation. Like there's a what I would call the innovation action potential. If you don't create enough defensible, differentiated, and delivered IP, we call it D3 IP, if you don't deliver enough of that into the market and capture enough value, your innovation will die in, in this term that's known as the innovation valley of death, sort of the, the middle ground between a quasi-functional thing and market adoption. And if you don't deliver enough value, you don't cross the desert, you don't cross that valley of death, and it just dies. And so your job as an innovator is to look at time, like do you have enough time, including market opportunity window? Do you have enough money to get there to do what you need to do? And most importantly, I think, is do you have enough political air support? 
innovation is rarely a straight line and you need stakeholders that are willing to fund you and be patient with you as you make mistakes, as you go down blind alleys and back out, and you ultimately evolve to a place where the innovation can thrive and be successful and delivered in market. And as an innovator, your job is really to look after those three resources and optimize them for the outcome because each time you deliver an increment of that D3 IP, it stacks the cards in your favor and you get closer and closer and closer to getting over that action potential where that innovation actually has adoption and, and then unlocks value for your organization. Okay, that, that's interesting because I, I, I was curious how organizations can really measure that return on innovation and really implement it correctly. So is that a major part of making sure that this is our return, this is how we're showing that it works and we get to that progression stage? It's important to think about return on innovation, not just return on investment. Return on investment has got to be there. If you're swinging for the fences, at some point, you got to hit a home run. You got to have some produced thing that creates a bunch of value for you. But you can measure alternate things. And there's other payments back to your organization when you're driving innovation around cultural benefits, around the kind of empowerment people feel to fix things that are ossified or problematic or slow or overly bureaucratic, right? That empowerment to actually go and do and create and, and question things and try things and fail and fix them, that's a super important value that is hard to put on a balance sheet. And then also, as you do these innovative things, some of them are going to fail. But that's not a zero on the ROI return on innovation balance sheet because the things that fail You've tried something hard, probably really hard. That's why you failed. And in that process, your organization has acquired skills and knowledge of an emergent tool. And the more emergent tools that your organization masters, the more adjacently possible things you're going to be successful at launching and adopting. So there, there's a lot of other things that come from innovation. There's a whole recruiting angle, right? Some of your best people might be apt to leave. Like, oh, well, I could get pretty much more salary than I'm making here and uh, grabbing for the brass ring, you know, upside in stock and options and whatever at this crazy startup. And it's in my domain of expertise. I'm going to go do that. And there's going to be six jobs for me. If that blows up, I'll have a job in no time. I'm not worried about it. And so you have this kind of brain drain or capital drain in your human and, and knowledge capital that's going out the door to go do startups or other things. And if you've invested in those people over years, if not a decade, in, in bringing them to where they are in their career, this is an option that says you can do that here. And you can retain all that investment inside your organization and your innovation programs. And then ideally, if your innovation program is well-structured and run, then you also get to reap the rewards of them being successful and everybody wins. So I think those dimensions are important to measure. I think there's other dimensions around the velocity of ideas if your organization feels empowered to change things, you'll see a good high velocity of ideas. If your organization feels empowered to try things, you'll look at project starts that fail. And if you have a zero failure rate, you know something's wrong. If you have a zero failure rate in your innovation program, some people might say, we have the best filtering and gating process possible. We only start things that are super important and gonna totally be successful. I would argue you're being way too cautious. The things that you're building are too far commoditized based on the process around them. And you're not taking enough risk to potentially have the outsized rewards of innovation programs. And so some measure of like ideas that made it to build, but also got killed is a good way to measure some dimension of your return on innovation. It's interesting when you talk about how innovation is within an organization and that approach, is there any way to kind of 
shift that mindset. Say you're in a, an organization who you're mentioning at the end there has a very kind of safe innovation scheme and they're not really pushing the envelope that much, but you can see where this company can go and what it can achieve. How would someone or, or a group of people really go about implementing change of that level? I would just say shameless self-promotion. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the real answer is you want an external outside-in point of view. You want to take someone who is practiced in the habits and tools and mechanisms to inspire innovative thinking and creative thinking. You want to leverage design thinking tools and techniques. And at times, that means engaging an external consultant. And that fee you should happily pay. Sometimes it's very difficult to be the person in the room amongst a team of cross-functional people at a large corporation where the politics of innovation and the risk profile of innovation isn't quite mature. And to be the one that opens your mouth and says something crazy, because then you're known as the guy who said the crazy thing. And then everyone laughs at the water cooler like, oh, I, I don't have a career limiting move from one innovation workshop comment. I'm not doing that. And sometimes you bring an external provider. They don't have any career development skin in the game inside your internal organization. They can help you say the crazy things. They can help give you safe space to say those things and kind of make it okay. And oftentimes what we'll hear from some of the more large and mature organizations that we work with, there's a Google Ventures pattern called a design sprint. It's a five-day exercise. It's meant to vet an idea. And through this five-day exercise, do some expansive ideation and, and get it to be bigger and enrich it. And then do some collimation and focus and prioritization and say, okay, what are we really trying to achieve? Then you build a prototype of it and you test it in front of users on the fifth day. It's a fantastic tool to really either get your organization unstuck if there's lots of competing ideas or to occupy a space with a visualized idea of what you could build in that the kind of adjacently possible stuff. Like what, what do we build into? So when we conduct those for folks, we frequently hear like, this is really uncomfortable for us. This is not how we work here at all. This is very creative and very organic and kind of nuclear fission, like ideas are popping off all over the place. And you can see some folks that are in very conservative organizations get kind of uncomfortable in that process. And, and it isn't something that would have happened without some external infusions of, of techniques and culture. And then from the build standpoint, too, sometimes folks internally are so full of the can't. I like to say we are the pole vaulters of the can't. Like they're full of internal IT restrictions and security team restrictions and all restrictions and filters and reviews and approvals and approved technology. And sometimes that's 15 years out of date with what's now adjacently possible with emergent tools. And being able to come in from the outside with a team of world-class engineers who just know what is available and can build things at super high velocity then all of a sudden, everyone who says, no, 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 can't, 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 60 to 90 days later, you built the prototype and you're back saying, okay, here it is. It's working. Now let's talk about security review. Now let's talk about how we integrate it with your existing systems. That's not done in a vacuum, right? We've got nearly 17 years now of enterprise software building and integration and security reviews and all that stuff. So it's not like you build it blindly and then show up and say, hey, now fit this in. It's more like, hey, it can be done. And the best way to get momentum behind that innovative idea is to actually show up with something working. Proof is in the pudding, as the old saying goes, and that's the, the best way to go for it. Hey, the, the, the old saying says the proof of the pudding is <laughs> in the taste. To put a fine point upon it, there is no logical proof written on paper shoved in a bowl of pudding. Very true. Very true. <laughs> I think that'll be our main takeaway. 
Sorry, <laughs> I, I had to do it. One other thing I wanted to touch on <laughs> is obviously uh, you mentioned the tools there, and, and tech is a big thing that we're discussing here. So could you walk me through how data-driven technology can help with the innovation end result and also kind of justify that innovation spend? Sure. So in the middle of a crisis, what happens, right? The CFOs take over or the COs take over and they're like, okay, let's look at our balance sheets. Let's look at cash. Let's figure out what's going on. The first two rules in the crisis playbook are fire all third-party labor and halt all capital expenditures, right? So in this current climate, the land of innovation is really struggling because there are some programs that are like smart and forward thinking and they're going to like plow through and say, yep, we're going to keep funding our strategic agenda because it's a multi-year thing. It, like this is a blip on that horizon and it's cool. We're going to get there. Other places are like, oh man, like we need to do something from a cash flow management standpoint and kind of make sure that we're preserving and being good fiduciary managers going forward. Like let's trim some expenses. So what I'm seeing right now, at least, is innovation is taking the form of what I would call digital transformation on steroids at ridiculous speed. Like the three-year digital transformation and you know just massive teams doing massively scoped things are either dying on the vine or not being started. Maybe the ones that are underway are being kind of funded along to get to completion, but nobody really has a huge appetite for that right now. And what we're seeing is a merger of transformational thinking with innovative thinking. The infrastructure of business is really now in a crisis, right? You don't know what to do. The best thing you can do in the middle of a crisis, invest in your data and your power to make decisions based on high quality data and high velocity data. And so what we are seeing is a lot of people investing in ETL pipelining, data quality programs, getting things into a properly laid out common data model and then launching analytics and machine learning models on top of that core data set at very, very high velocity compared to the past. And some of the tools that we're using now enable us to just show up, drop a data pipeline in place, and within 30 or 60 days, have stuff moving into an analytics queue. And another 30 days beyond that, have organizational dashboards and workflow systems. So you can go from data to decision very rapidly, and then from decision into captured value. That's, I think, where most of the tech we're seeing like right now, situationally, where people are investing in innovation. It's how can I get higher quality data? How can I surface it to be where I need it to be? And then how can I make decisions based on it and route those decisions to the actors throughout my business so that they can take advantage of it? That answers it perfectly. (laughs) I like the steps that are needed, which leads me on nicely to my next point. I was going to ask, what are those steps that... The way to phrase it is the main tripping points that always seem to come up that organizations should be mindful of before really starting anything like this. We, we've gone through the steps that need to be done to get to a successful endpoint, but what should people be considering before they even start anything like this? It's like you're reading my mind. We have a line of service that we call our Data to Decision Accelerator. It has five key steps along the way. Each of them can be kind of engaged in as a standalone kind of package service offering. But the five key things are there's this design workshop kind of build your roadmap five-day process, right? Where you're looking at the needs of your organization, you're looking at your data feeds, your quality, the decisions that you want to be able to make or that are taking too long to be made. And you're planning out a roadmap. You're saying, hey, what are we going to go do? And I think one of the most critical things is if you're going to go do digital transformation on steroids at ridiculous speed, you are about to like zoom out of the gate and just run like mad. 
well, you should probably pause for like, you know, five days before you run out of the gate and make sure that the direction you're heading is the right direction. And so the design sprint stuff that we do is meant to fill up an operational and data engineering and development roadmap that is merged with your organizational priorities to make sure right at this moment for what we're going to go start, it's pointed in the right direction because we're going to go and move really fast. And then what we're seeing is the other stops. The first thing absolutely is ETL pipelining, extract, transform, and load. So in the data wrangling world of things, right, you get all this data that's all over the place. You got to build a whole bunch of validators. You got to like transform it, get it in the right shape. But then you got to put it somewhere. And what we find is a lot of folks miss the step of really maturing that common data model to say, where am I going to put all this stuff and how does it all relate to each other? Because if you can't do that, you don't know how to use it. So a lot of our initial data engineering stuff is based on taking those priorities from the design sprint and saying, okay, here's what we need to achieve. Here's the feeds that are going to get us there. And then looking at the feeds, what fields are there? How are they keyed? What kind of quality things do we have to do? What kind of data hygiene and creation do we have to do? So this is like this feed onboarding process and then transformation process and this common data modeling process. And then once you've got it in a common data model, we have some cool patterns that immediately create an enterprise API. We, we leverage some different things that will inspect the common data model and automatically generate the API for you. So all of that like back and forth middle work just goes away. And sort of once you have it in your common data model, once you can expose it through APIs to either other systems in your organization or other analytics packages you want to build or dashboards, now you can start to use the data. So then you get into two other things, right? You have these enterprise API integrations where you're trying to move the data around to all kinds of other places. You're possibly doing some data science work or spinning up new calculated fields or metrics or things like that so that you can actually make better decisions. And then there's a whole data viz side of our practice where you're trying to then visualize that data and allow business users to make decisions from it. Not everybody can look at a giant field of data and throw it into some statistical processing package and make a decision that way. Some folks, usually more senior business executives, they need a summary, they need a visualization, and they need it to be current and up to date so that they can make decisions when they need to. And then really, I think the final kind of bit of it is the data doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so there's some data hygiene, data quality, and, and uh, data curation tasks that need to go on. Once you've got the system active and functional, you got to take care of it because data in the wild is going to drift. It's going to accumulate errors, can change the structure. You got to maintain that pipeline into the common data models so that your analytics packages keep working. And then you're going to want to add new data when you discover new problems. You'll do a design sprint again and say, here's a whole new suite of data we want to add, a whole new suite of problems we want to solve. And then you'll go back and kind of progressively just keep iterating on, on that process and keep shipping value, keep delivering things into the hands of business users so that they can actually capture value. Excellent. That is very thorough and to the point, and I like that answer. It uh, should be something that everyone follows moving forward. <laughs> I think that's some solid advice. Yeah, we have a pretty cool data engineering, data to decision diagnostic on our site that people can take if they're looking for advice on dimensions where they might want to be able to invest or where they might want to focus their road mapping initiatives. And certainly we have tons of architects and, and data engineers. And if the best thing to do is, is have a conversation and just understand what you might do. So, you know, going back to that point of shameless self-promotion, just ask a third party who might make this their sweet spot. And you can usually get yourself prepared pretty quickly and get some good advice on what direction to head. That's what it comes down to, having that conversation and bouncing ideas and just fully understanding it and moving forward from there. 
I'm afraid we're on to our kind of final question here, but I think it's a, it's a doozy. So I wanted to kind of ask you, Art, you've given us your background. You've got a lot of great experience in this and our conversation that we've had today, you know your stuff. So I wanted to ask you about what you hope to see become the norm for the future of innovation and organizations and, and really what you want to see happen over the next five to 10 years. That's a big question. So I will take a detour and then I'll come back and, and answer your question. So you mentioned something that actually really strikes chord with me in terms of like the serendipity of the conversation and the, the interactions that people have. And as we all move to work remote or largely work remote or a hybrid, largely remote model, my hopes and dreams for innovation and just the general workforce is we learn and, and adopt more habits that allow those serendipitous interactions and that kind of idea compounding to still happen. We've been super successful pivoting our design sprint exercises, which are typically done in a room together, locked up for five days to an online version of it. And we've we've run a couple of them that have gone really, really well. And so we've, we've found ways to make it work from a remote standpoint, which I think is going to change forever. I don't think a bunch of the work that gets done in innovation needs to be in person anymore. But I do wonder about tools that will evolve in the market and other kinds of things that will help us maintain the kind of serendipity of, of random interactions in an office, which I think is a very helpful part in the innovation process. I think from an innovation standpoint as the business at large, I think folks are going to find that some form of internal venture studio or venture incubation model is a really successful way to go. Trying to boot up internally kind of consulting only versions of building innovative products or trying to boot new carve outs from your staff to move them into innovation functions is tricky. And I think there's some mixture of, again, time, budget, and political capital, where if you have this venture studio model where the participants are somehow stakeholders in the outcome and that there's kind of structured investment committee like decisions and funding for them internally, you know, kind of the entrepreneurship or the spin out to spin back in model. I just think the corporate folks, larger companies trying to really kind of put some steroids into their innovation programs, they'll trend towards more corporate VC, but not in the traditional sense, more in, in the incubation studio model. You kind of see an analog of it in what's happened to the marketing and advertising industry, where a lot of folks have JV'd with large holding companies or advertising firms to build local internal agencies where they have retained people and retained knowledge, but it's sort of operated in-house. I think you may see some similar kind of internal business units cropping up as partnerships with external innovators, but building studios that everyone has a combined interest in. I'd love to see that model take off. I'm excited to see where the space kind of grows because there's so much opportunity for growth and excuse the pun, but innovation uh, going forward with all of it. So it's um exciting space. And Art, I can't thank you enough for coming on this podcast and giving great insightful answers and really just giving your thoughts on all of these topics. It's been great to talk to you today. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. And thank you, everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. We hope you took a lot away. If you would like more information, please head on over to elephantventures.com. And you can also find all of our content at em360tech.com. Please subscribe onto our social sites, which is Twitter and LinkedIn at em360. And we'll be back next week with another episode in our Ask the Expert series.
been listening to the EM360 podcast. For more great content, head on over to em360tech.com.